Hey, entrepreneurs, is there a doctor in the house? We got Dr. T, Toby Travis, on today's episode. And his mission in life is to help others find mission fulfillment and well-being for themselves. And those are two separate things that we talk about on this podcast. He has a concept that he wrote a book about called Trust Ed. He breaks down the components of a bridge and relates them with the components of trust in just a brilliant way that John and I have not heard before. We talk about everything from transparency to authenticity to relationships and how to evaluate trust. One of the things he doubles down on at the end of the episode is looking forward to you hearing that at the end of the episode. Dr. Travis, we are happy to have you on Entrepreneurs United today as uh, we were just chatting just a little bit and being an entrepreneur yourself and just looking on LinkedIn, you have uh, so many experiences. We're happy to dig into some of those with you today. If you wouldn't mind kicking us off with, uh, what are you doing today? And maybe just very briefly, why? Well, thank you. First of all, Rich, great to be here. Um, what I'm doing today is kind of what I've done all my life. I'm wearing multiple hats. So, you know, my, my full-time day job is I'm a superintendent of a private school in North Carolina. And so that's, uh, that's kind of the, the, the full-time uh, endeavor. And then I also um, work and serve as a consultant, as an executive coach, as a mentor uh, to um, both school and organizational leaders, uh, literally around the world. I've had the opportunity of um, just uh, uh, connecting with some amazing people in some distant and faraway lands. I actually really have a passion for helping those in distressed and developing areas. Uh, that's That's been uh, kind of a, a, a niche or a niche of mine for a number of years. So I currently have clients in places like Haiti and the Dominican Republic, just wrapped up on a, a contract with a group in Vietnam. And so it's not just, you know, North American focused or based. And, uh, and then uh, I also uh, do trainings, uh, provide professional development for schools and organizations, specifically on how to increase their level of trust. And so it, it's really, you know, it's about uh, how do we increase a better work environment that also produces uh, higher and better results uh, to what we do. So kind of, you know, my mission in life is to help others find mission fulfillment and well-being at the same time. So it's not just about producing results, it's producing results and supporting people well. And what we find is, and I'm sure we'll get into this, is the, the better the work climate, the higher the production of you know, what, what comes out of it. And we've seen that through the research and practice. Uh, and, and anecdotally, I've seen it time and time again, when employees are happy, well-supported, protected, um, they get motivated, they innovate, they, they produce more. And uh, so that's, that's kind of the work that I'm in is helping others discover how to do that better. So that probably wasn't short or brief, but that's no, kind of what I'm currently doing. Yeah, thanks for the context. And uh, it, your mission being to help others find mission fulfillment and well-being themselves. Uh, can we dig into that just a little bit more on for how long has that been your mission and how did you come to realize what your life mission was? I'll preface that with, I think 
there are a lot of entrepreneurs or just individuals out in the world that kind of wonder what is their mission. Um, so that's why I'm curious to dig into a touch of your story on how long have you known that's been your mission and a little bit more on that. It's a really good question. Uh, that you know, articulating that that concept or that mission statement, personal mission statement of helping others reach their mission fulfillment and well-being is is well relatively recent. You know, the last few years, I think, coming to that articulation. But the understanding of why that's so important really goes back decades. Uh, you know, I think when I was a young entrepreneur and, and starting businesses in my late 20s and uh, early 30s and, and realizing very quickly, life's about relationships, successful work and, uh, and development of our careers, our business, whatever our ambitions are, it's really about relationships. And so having that understanding that when we help others succeed, we succeed. And uh, so, um, you know, I, I think, uh, again, I, I don't know that I could put a date on it, Rich. I don't think I could say, yeah, you know, I had this flash moment in 1987. Um, you know, I, I, you, you develop. Um, but uh, what, yeah, what I would mean? say go back to that realization and, and, and some mentoring that I had. Uh, from others who invested in me. And I think that also was an influence of understanding. Now I get the relationships right. And then other things, really good things start happening. Well, here might be another access point. What's the earliest memory you have in your life of when you felt fulfilled to be part of someone else's journey of fulfillment? Well, as I mentioned to you before we went on the recording, I actually started out uh, in the entertainment world uh, years ago. So I was a young aspiring actor and singer and even a magician. I actually produced a touring illusion show for a number of years. Um, but also, but I've always been involved in education and mentoring. So even in those years, others would reach out to me to assess their, their show. Um, I had uh, created something called show mapping, which was a way to basically analyze uh, shows and performances and to help uh, performers with routining their shows. And, uh, and so that just, I got so much fulfillment out of going in and helping somebody else develop their craft. And, and, and also what I discovered, the more I helped others, the better I got. You know, and, and then as I moved into the education sector years later, uh, I started to be uh, invited into what are called accreditation visits. And so I would be assigned to these teams to go onto a school campus and assess um, basically schools in a cr accreditation process. They do a self-study. They put out this report and the visit team, the review team, our job is to make sure is that report real. And, and true. And as you spend days on a campus and interact with people, I realized by helping others and assessing others, I was assessing myself and my own practice just got better and better and better. And so I think that um, that understanding of I'm fulfilled by helping others succeed uh, really started back in those early days uh, of, of my entertainment career. Yeah. And you've been able to kind of build and spin out a, uh, a legacy for yourself wrapped around working with and helping others be fulfilled, which is pretty cool. Um, 
You had mentioned you do trainings, and then right after that, you had mentioned on uh, developing or increasing trust. Um, that's obviously, it, it's an undebatably important component of business and of relationships. I'd love to hear from you, what are the most common ways you see that people erode trust? Yeah. What are some of the absolutely don't do's that you believe everybody should really be aware of? If you want to have a trusting relationship, don't do these couple of things. So I, I have a new book out called Trust Ed, The Bridge to School Improvement. And we, I, I should say, use this analogy of a bridge that has six major components that have all can be connected together or the bridge is not trustworthy. And, it, and it's a good illustration. You know, it's like, you're not going to drive onto a bridge that's full of potholes or, you know, it doesn't have, uh, you know, railings and, you know, and same thing with trust. If we don't have certain elements, their trust don't ex does not exist. So for example, trust requires uh, a trusted leader. Uh, it requires that they have well-articulated values and beliefs about whatever it is, their business, their work is, their profession, uh, their practices, the, you know, the work culture they're, they're trying to create. Um, but that's the foundation of leadership. What do we believe about what we're doing together as an organization? What are our values for uh, how we should do life and work together? Foundation of the bridge of trust. Substructure on a bridge is all about connecting and supporting everything of the bridge to the foundation of the bridge. But on leadership, that is the process of consistency of practice. And what I'm saying there is consistent uh, protocols, policies that are consistent with what we say about who we are and how we believe our work should be. And that's probably the area where I see uh, trust falls apart most frequently is a leader or, or a business owner will say, you know, hey, employees are our greatest asset, right? So they are the essence of our company, our organization. But then policies and practices and procedures of what that owner is doing and involved in does not demonstrate that the employees are their greatest value. And they're making decisions that, that aren't asking the question first, how does this impact our employees? That's where trust erodes. Mm -hmm. And they're not demonstrating the substructure of trust, which is connecting everything that we do and supporting everything we do uh, with, with our beliefs and our values. Wow, that's great. I, I, I love the questions, Rich, that you're asking here. And so to paraphrase, you know, in your trust ed book, which we'll talk about in a little bit, uh, maybe we're talking about it now as well, is that the, the, the theory is this bridge uh, and that, you know, much like you would if you're driving the car, right, that bridge is strong or not. And you have foundation and this and really the substructure. And what I think you're, you're saying is that the foundation is me saying things. I put values and posters on the wall. I tell people what I'm all about and it's lip service. Um, versus the substructure is what do I actually do? Do I walk the walk? Yeah. Is that right. fair to say? Yeah, absolutely. And am I being consistent? And and 
Mm. You know, this isn't just my idea, by the way. This isn't yeah, just yeah. a good thinking. This is the research. You know, yeah, this, yeah. this, and it's not just mine. I mean, there's there's a boatload of research uh, that's out there uh, on this. And what we've discovered, and what we, you know, what I'm articulating in the book, just so we can get our arms around it, mm-hmm. is there are actually six distinct components of trusted leadership. Okay. Uh, now, I work primarily in the education sector, so uh, the the book utilizes. Uh, education leadership as the examples, but the principles are universal. And uh, but correct, John. Those are the those are the two uh, starting points, if you will. You know, you look into a um, uh, a company handbook or a school handbook, right? Uh, yep. the, you know, the employee manual, and and often they'll have a mission statement. They'll have a vision statement. They'll even have articulated here are company values. Mm-hmm. Those are really important statements, and especially you know in driving um, the improvement and the ongoing development of the organization. But where those statements really pay off, though, is in their consistency of practice. Yep. And is it authentic? And again, back to you know Rich's question. Authentic, that's yeah. where trust most frequently falls apart. Yeah, and I think the word authentic is is massive there. Um, I, I got a bunch of questions here to go on, but I want us to stick where you just ended. And I want to come back to the six principles of trusted leadership here in a second, because I think it's very important to capture. In terms of authenticity, what I've seen, uh, whether it be with myself or with others that I'm witnessing, uh, is most times the leader doesn't really recognize when they've stepped offline. Uh, but everybody else does, yeah. but they don't have the heart or the courage to address it with the leader because they're the leader. Who am I to go to the, the superintendent of the school and tell him he's off base? Like, I'm not going to do that to Dr. T like, you know, so right. how, how do, how can we help entrepreneurs be more cognizant of their behaviors when maybe sometimes they didn't mean to, but they stepped out of the, the consistency. They weren't as authentic as they say they are. How do you help leaders and you know recognize that? Well, one of the first steps to developing a higher level of trust between leadership and and those whom they are leading is being vulnerable and being humble. I'm sure you're familiar with the work of Jim Collins. You know, uh, Jim Collins talks about the level five leader as being yep. someone who is mission driven, you know, passionate for the organization's mission. But that's also hitched to humility. And so um, the first thing I would counsel a leader is you need to be open to letting your employees assess you and especially your direct reports. And, and so that's, that's part of the work that we do. We, we actually do a 360 assessment where uh, employees or direct reports are speaking directly about uh, the trust level of their supervisor and, uh, and using that data to then drive and inform some action planning. How do we make this better? But the, the first point is just being willing to let others speak into your life. But what's interesting, just that action alone increases the level of trust. For me to say as a school superintendent to my principals and to my division heads, you know what, you're, you're going to get this survey from a company and it's it's uh, it's anonymous. Uh, I won't know who's saying what. And you're going to be asked 48 questions about my leadership style and behaviors. Have at it. I need some data here to tell me how I'm doing. And that action alone is saying I am willing to look in the mirror. And if I may, uh, often what we do, well, always, 
is we have a self-assessment tool, right? So as a leader, I do this self-assessment yeah. and it gives me a score on these six components of trust. And then my employees assess me, you know, with that 360. What the gap is. Yeah, exactly. And then, and then right, so it, you have this trust perception gap that's going on. But one of the things, guys, is in this area of development, perception is reality. No question. That's good. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, we might think and argue, no, 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 I'm, I, you know, I'm, I do this well. And mm, no, when we're talking about leadership, no, perception is, is reality. Uh, quick question for you around authentic that John honed in on. I'd like to get your take on the difference between authentic and transparent, because I think there are some people that use those interchangeably. Right. Uh, in the English language, there really aren't two words that aren't nuanced in some way as being different. Otherwise, there wouldn't be two words for them. No. I think they're different, but if you asked me to articulate it, I don't think I'd do it very cleanly. I'd love to hear your thoughts on uh, the necessity for authenticity, yes, but then what is transparency and how do those two coincide or not coincide? That's a really good question. Um, for me, authenticity, is, again, is all about are we consistently living out who we say we are? And are we, uh, again, are we keeping, are we demonstrating the, the values and beliefs that we articulate or have documented? Um, that, that would be the authentic element. Transparency is tricky. Uh, I've, I've heard, you know, oh, we need leadership to be more transparent. But if you've been in a leadership role, you know, you can't always be transparent. And that it's not always healthy for the organization, for everybody to know everything. And so that gets a bit tricky. I think when people are crying for transparency, really what they're crying for is they don't want to get blindsided. They want to know, you know, when, when, when a new initiative is coming your way, they want to have an opportunity to speak into it be, before it becomes the law of the land or becomes, you know, the, the expected practice. To me, when I'm uh, assessing organizations and I hear, oh, the leadership's not transparent enough, and I, I say, well, give me an example of that, almost always what they'll share with me is how they were blindsided. You know, some new practice, some new expectation, some new measure of assessing their work came out, and they had no opportunity to engage in the development of whatever that new practice or policy is. It just was laid on them. And then they feel like, wow, where did that come from? You know, why is leadership hiding that? So, you know, that's probably one of the, the most frequent things I hear about transparency. And also uh, is... Owners not being, uh, or leaders not being transparent about their own failures or about uh, when an organization or a company is facing serious challenges. Uh, you know, let, let's say, you know, you've taken some really serious financial hits and you're thinking as a leader, ooh, I better not go too public with that or that's going to create a, a bad uh, narrative. Yeah. And, and I am a big believer in tell your own story, because if you don't tell your story, somebody else will. That's also a really important principle. But, but when we're talking about the relationship between leaders and their organization, people don't want to get blindsided with bad news about the economics of the organization. I mean, that you need to be transparent. And um, so that would be another area of transparency. They would say, yes, don't blindsight your people, but also as leaders, 
you know, when you, you've got, um, you know, personal issues going on with an employee that is affecting the company, but you, you know, you need to have confidentiality. I mean, your office needs to be a safe zone for your employees. Um, if I can, let me tell you a great story I was reminded of just the other day. What? So years ago, I was a high school principal. And uh, I had a student came in. I think he, he was probably a sophomore, junior, probably by that time. And I had a little, little couch sitting there in the office. And he comes into my office and he plops down on the couch. He lets out this big sigh. He goes, oh. And I said, what's that about? He goes, this is the transparency room. <laughs> <laughs> I said, the what? He goes, it's the transparency room. He says, Dr. T, I, I can tell you anything. I tell you, that made my day. Yeah. And that's the same, you know, just in that relationship I, I was trying to pursue with students. And, and so thankful I had that relationship with that student. Uh, this is all the same relationship I want to have with my employees, and especially my direct reports. When they walk into my, my office, and especially when they walk into my office and they close the door behind them, this needs to be a safe environment, which means they know I am not going to be transparent about everything. Make sense? Mm -hmm. Oh, big time. It's uh, There's so many places to go, continue to go with this. And I love this conversation about why can a leader not always be transparent when their team wants them to be transparent, demands transparency from them. Is that really what they're asking for? Love, love, love that because communication with your team is important. Right. But trust is coming back to being very important as well. And sometimes transparency puts you in that middle between trust and being communicative with your team. And, you know, the one thing you just said about safe, I want to come back all the way back to when you first started talking about increasing the level of trust in your organization. One of the things you said was people need to feel safe. Yeah. It's not just about trusting the business. They want to feel like they're safe in their environment, right? right. They have their security measures met. Yeah. Uh, so I, I, I really, really love that. Take us all the way back here because there may be a few other areas we need to go, but I don't want to go too far until I really hear these six principles of trusted oh, leadership. Right. I really need to right. hear these because they, they may all come back full circle into these. Well, again, if you picture a bridge, okay, yeah. so we've already talked foundation, substructure. Actually, we were really just talking about what I call the deck of trusted leadership. So the deck is that, that roadway, right? Well, what makes... a uh, a, the deck of the bridge trustworthy to us is, well, we know our lane. It's very clear. We know where we're going, you know, and we're in this lane. These are the clear markings and that's where we're heading. Um, well, that is the, the role of, a, of trusted leadership is order and clarity. It's a lot about communication skills. So that, that would fall into that category as well. Other elements of a bridge, uh, there are the bearings in a suspension bridge, especially. So these bearings, you might not even realize that they're there, but they're actually moving constantly. Mm. And what you see in the bearings of, of, of these major bridges is um, they, they are moving based on um, climate. Uh, in areas where there might be earthquakes, literally, you know, as, as the foundation is, is, is rocking, payload, I mean, all kinds of, here the point is in leadership, trusted leadership, the bearings of trusted leadership is flexibility. Yep. And 
But we've also learned, though, is you cannot be flexible in a trustworthy way if you are also not involved. So we talk about leadership must be involved in the nuts and the bolts of the organization. That can't be a trusted and and, and effective leader sitting behind three doors of secretaries, right? I've got to be in the meetings. I've got to be on the floor. I've I've got to be interacting with uh, whomever the clientele might be. But that's the bearings of leadership. Flexibility and involvement. Okay. A bridge has girders. Uh, so these are the beams that run underneath the bridge. These look different based on the bridge and the context of where the bridge is constructed. So if the bridge is on a corner, well, some of those girders are going to be longer than others, right? And they're going to be wider than others. And it's similar to the bearings idea of flexibility involvement. Here, what we're talking about is adaptation and contextualizing. And what we've learned, you maybe have heard the expression, best practice must always be contextualized. It is so true. Uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm a research guy, right? And I, I, I talk a lot about best practice, but I'll also be the first to say that when we see research-based best practices on leadership, we're talking about these are practices that have worked uh, in most similar settings and come up with these results. But you must always contextualize the practice. Where we see the, uh, a real struggle of this in, it, in the education sector is a district leader or board may, well intending to demonstrate equity uh, for everyone, they'll make a they'll Im, Im, uh, implement a practice or a policy, and it's made at the district level, and then it, it falls apart for some reason. It's because they haven't processed and vetted it locally. And what I've learned in the education sector is every campus is different. And I see the same thing in the commercial world. So the bigger the business, the the bigger and the more intentionally rather they have to be in ensuring decisions are being vetted and then contextualized to that local store, to that local outlet, um, because employees look different. Customers look different. uh, The culture and the environment around uh, the the organization looks different um, in the school. Parents look different. Students and their needs look different. The teachers look different. We've, so this is the, the girders of leadership, this idea. Okay. Of, no, we're going to contextualize this. And the last one is superstructure. You know, at a bridge, that's what we see from the greatest distance away, right? It's, it's, it's the, the big, large uh, element. Well, what's the big, large element in leadership? It's culture and relationships. And trusted leaders intentionally build positive culture. Mm -hmm. Uh, They intentionally develop relationships. I mentioned it earlier, you know, we, we need to be tellers of the organizational story. And if we don't tell the story, if we're not intentional about it, somebody else is going to tell another story. And uh, so here uh, it's this idea of intentionally developing uh, a positive, healthy, trusted uh, culture. And there's there's ways that we can we can do that. There's ways that we can assess it and do it. But there you go. And then the, the last piece that I, I talk about in the book are are the uh, the the, uh, the the cables. And you know, on a suspension bridge, you get all these suspension cables. Well, in leadership, those are those individual best practices. Uh, and this is what basically um, you know helps with the the swaying and the movement and the interconnecting of all of it are the very specific practices that we do. Uh, and and again, we've been able to identify exactly what those are, so we can assess them and and help others identify. Hey, this is your strength. 
this we need to work on. Ooh, we're missing this. It can also be a, a real help in HR. You know, when we're developing a profile, who do we need to hire here? Well, we're missing somebody who's really got this skill set. And, and so that's that's really valuable because leadership is all about teamwork. You know, it's yep, not yep. about having, you know, remember, you know, the Lee Iacocca story, right? You, you think uh, this charismatic leader is going to come in and fix it all. Well, it works for a short amount of time. But if you don't invest in a leadership team, and again, back to the bridge, no one, no individual leader can have all these skill sets, right? It's just not possible, right? Uh, in, in schools, we talk about there are 21 responsibilities that principals must have competency in, and I've never met a principal who is competent in all 21. Exactly. So what does it mean? He or she needs to lead and develop a team yeah. that then can do this well. And uh, so there you go. There's the bridge Perfect. analogy. And, I, and I, the I love it. Models. Maybe, I mean, you've had a lot of different phases of your careers, right? From being a tour, touring illusion show to an entrepreneur and startups to schools and everything else. Are you sure you're not an engineer? Because you seem to understand bridges pretty well. <laughs> um, so let me, let me make sure I got them though. There's the lane. There's the bearings, there's the girders or beams, and then I got cables, but I feel like I'm missing two in between. Right. So foundation, ah, okay. values and beliefs, okay. substructure, gotcha. which is connect and support, bearings, flexible and involved, yep. girders, contextualize and adapt, superstructure, culture and relationships, and the deck, order and clarity. And connecting those all together, are the suspension cables of best practices of leadership. Love it. Love it. And I'm sorry if I'm sounding like I'm teaching a seminar. No, this is, this is awesome. Yeah. I'm, I'm, well, uh, and, I, and I always like to give full credit, John. Um, you know, when I came out of the doctoral program and, you know, you're looking at all, how do you communicate all of this? It really was my wife's idea. We were sitting at the table one night and I'm like, okay, I need a visual to communicate yep. this. And she goes, well, sweetie, isn't it really just like a bridge? And yeah. I'm like, bing, 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 bing. I was like, great idea. And went back and looked at, at the research. And it's like, yeah, no, that fits here, that fits here. And so to your point, I actually did go back and spent about three months studying um, bridge construction and architecture. I am not an architect. That's awesome. But I know more about bridges than I ever knew before uh, getting ready to write this book. What's on either side of the bridge? Like I, I'm making the assumption it's yeah. uh, bridging one person to another. No, no, it's a bridge from where we are as an organization to where we want to be. Got it. So how do we as leaders effectively get over? And and you know, and I think in the book I use a number of different illustrations. Of, you know, what's that river? The river are all the potential problems, right? All the things, all the hurdles the organization has to get over to get. So we we set improvement goals. Where do we want to be as an organization? How do we get there? And what is leadership's role in getting us there? It's to build a bridge over all of these potential hazards. And you know, some people. There's all kinds of different approaches of leadership. You know, there's the individuals who, again, are the, they're the solopreneurs um, that want to just do it all themselves. And they roll up their sleeves or they strip down, if you will, and they dive into the river to swim across and they end up getting overwhelmed. Right. There's the others who try to build a little you know, raft and take a few over with them, but they really don't have, you know, what it's going to take to get large groups of people uh, across. So, I mean, there's all kinds of illustrations we could use, but it's that idea of getting us from where we are to where we want to be. Thank you for that. I've got a question on the bearings. 
the way that you described the bearings, and I took notes, and they may not be complete, but it was, uh, they're moving based on the climate and the load, and it was about flexibility, and included in that is a need to be involved in the nuts and bolts. In my experience, that hasn't been an issue for entrepreneurs that I work with is being involved. The, the <laughs> issue is being over-involved. Uh, the issue is not being able to step away from it. And I'd love to get your take on where's the balance point of that in the bearings part of the analogy to go, how do you know if you're involved enough versus you're doing some micromanaging and you're over-involved and you're not actually trusting your people? Yeah, no, that's really good, Rich. Um I think of some of the best counsel I had when I my when I came into my first role as a principal and um, one of my mentors said to me, Toby, you're going to be overwhelmed. What you're going to find is there's just so much that's coming across your desk. So there's a question you need to ask every day and maybe every hour. And that is, does the principal need to do this? And if the answer is no, then you better find somebody else to do it because only you can do what the principal is doing. Uh, today, I'm a superintendent. Same thing holds true. It's like something comes to my desk or comes to my email. I have to look and I have to say, okay, is this something the superintendent needs to do? Because there's only one superintendent in this school, right? And, and if I don't do what the superintendent needs to be doing, then it's not going to get done. So I would say, Rich, it comes back to clear, clarity of roles and trusting your people, right? Um and so, you know, that CEO, that, that business owner, they need to be very clear on, okay, what is my role? Why did I hire these other individuals? And am I empowering to do what they should do? Because you're right, that will destroy trust. If I hire an individual and then I try to do their job, all that's going to build is resentment, right? And then it goes back to that old principle, hire well, support well. Here's another piece of that. So some of the work that I do with organizations is we'll pull out their employee manual. I'm going to say, I want you to go through this manual of policies and identify every policy that is or has been developed because of a lack of trust of employees. How many, how many procedures do you have in place are there because you don't trust your employees to do the right thing? And that's an eye-opening exercise. And then it comes back to, well, why are those policies there? Uh, you know, and it's usually because one or two individuals, you know, were, were really the wrong hires. And you ended up changing your corporate culture because of the blunders of a couple of individuals. You probably should have just let them find their happiness somewhere else. So, you know, it, it, have you hired the right people? If you hire the right people, you don't need all these structures in place for accountability. They're going to be fully engaged into their job. And if they're not, let them go. <laughs> and it, it, there's, it, I'm sure you're probably familiar with the book, uh, The Trust Edge by David Horsager. It was number one in the Wall Street Journal. For David does great work. And uh, I've known David for years. And one of the things that he talks about is how there's data that shows how companies are far more profitable when there are trusted environments, because you're not spending as much money on systems and protocols to ensure accountability. And it again, it comes back to again. I'm, I'm kind of taking you around the corner there, but but back to your question, it's 
what's my role as the as the owner, as the founder, and am I staying in my lane and allowing others that I'm bringing on to do their jobs? Uh, so it comes back to that self-reflection piece constantly. And it almost comes back, I'm hearing a little bit of that, is it almost comes back to defining the deck on what is in my lane, but included in that is also being very clear about what's in your lane. And yes. right. Right. And being involved to the extent that I am helping you work in your lane, I'm not overtaking your lane. So within the context of your analogy, I think that's some of what I'm hearing. Right. And, and let me get right down to maybe kind of a takeaway for folks. Uh, so what's a specific practice? I mean, we're, we're talking a lot of you know philosophy and theory here. How do you actually do things to make this work better? So a practice that I do, and actually I'm thinking of it because I just wrapped up the mid-year round of this. At the beginning of every year, and so in the school world, of course, that would be the academic year. But, but annually, at the beginning of the year, whatever that looks like for you, I meet with every direct report one-on-one and we review their job description. And here's an opportunity for us to identify, okay, are these the things you're really doing? Um, Is there anything on this list that um, you aren't doing and you think, you know, I need to be doing that better? Is there anything on this list you think, no, that needs to be on somebody else's list. But the point is you have an opportunity to review what is your job, what are these specific responsibilities, what is your lane, if you will, because these are the things I'm going to evaluate you on as we go through the year. So let's make sure we are in full agreement, right? And, and that also reminds me, you know, we, we should never be evaluating employees on anything other than what has been articulated, you know, as an expectation. Well, then mid-year, I have what I call stay interviews. And, and so it's, it's usually a short meeting, maybe 15 minutes, but we'll pull out that job description again. This is not an evaluative meeting. It's, hey, how are you doing? How are these things going? And and how's your boss doing? And, and so it's 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 just how do I how do I reflect on okay, no, are you in your lane? Am I in my lane? And you give them that opportunity to speak on it. And then at the end of the year, that job description turns into an evaluation form where every one of those listed responsibilities are now on, are mirrored on an evaluation form with a very clear rubric of um, you know, not meeting expectations, needs development proficient, exceeding expectations, and then a little comment and evidence box. You know, I'm going to give you this, but actually I would ask you to direct report, self-evaluate yourself, right? Give yourself markings and all of this, and then come and let's talk about it. And at the end of the year, I give them my feedback. But that is a, a practice, a best practice that helps to ensure that we're in our lane um, and that there's clarity of expectations. Yeah, very good. And my understanding of a stay interview, I was just introduced to this for the first time. Uh, it may have been as recent as uh, in the last six weeks or so. Uh, my understanding of that is that's the juxtaposition to an exit interview. Why wait to interview somebody until after they leave when you could interview them and find out what's happening while they're still there? Is that accurate? Sure, right. I mean, we're all familiar with exit interviews. You know, we try to figure out and track data of why are people leaving or why were they let go. Um, But especially, you know, in our current employment crisis, uh, all the more important that we are doing all that we can to figure out how to keep people, you know, uh, in place and and fulfilled. You know, it is a retention practice. Uh, There's also quite a bit of data on when there are high levels of trust, there are high levels of retention. Mm -hmm. So again, it comes back to are we intentionally assessing, 
developing, repairing when needed uh, those, those trust levels. And when you do that, you have a higher levels of retention significantly. People yeah. say, people, you know, well, the number one reason people leave employment, and I'm sure you've seen these figures, you know, it's because of a lack of support from their supervisor. It's not about the money. It's not the work environment. It's, I don't feel supported. And that's why people leave. Um, so, you know, make sure you're intentionally addressing that one. And yeah, people stay. It's not always about the money. And you had said you do consulting work. And uh, do you consult small to mid-sized businesses that are service-based businesses? Because I have a follow-up question, assuming, yes, I do some of those uh, businesses. I do. In fact, just yesterday, I was uh, I have a client that has a, a museum. And, you know, very small staff. Uh, I think they have four paid staff and, uh, you know, a pretty large board and volunteer group. And uh, but it's it's a privately owned uh, museum. Uh, so, yes, uh, I do that. But, but there's other scale as well. Sure. And uh, but yes. Yeah. John and I believe that the majority of our listeners would be on the small to midsize, probably service space. There aren't any. Uh, multi-billion dollar product-based companies that are probably listening to our podcast. So that's, that, that's why I wanted to ask you that as almost kind of a qualifying question first, before asking you, in those small to mid-sized service-based businesses, what element of the bridge do you find fails most often? Just like a bridge inspector could go to a certain state that has a certain climate and they know who the manufacturer was of it, and they know, oh, on this one, it's the rivets that always pop, and it's on this side of the bridge. Like, what's predictable that's most likely to fail on this bridge that you could provide some practical advice for our listeners to on how to reinforce it to not fail? It's, it's hard to say which is predominant. Um, I mean, literally every organization is unique. That's why, again, I made that statement earlier, you know, every school campus is unique. So, and it's true in business as well, every situation. But I think uh, I, where I would go is um, in the area of, of protecting employees. And what I mean by that is um, we are... As leaders, we should be champions. We should be out in front of um, assessing and and knowing what the needs are of our of our employees, what their capacity is. Um, very important to realize that what's going on. Um, Outside of the work environment has a huge impact on what happens in the work environment. Now, it doesn't mean we have to get personal and intimate with everyone's, you know, um, life, but we need to have an awareness of what's going on. And because if you've got an employee who's also caring for elderly parents that are, you know, in hospice care or something, I mean, this this has huge impact on on their their work and stream. I would say, uh, <coughs> excuse me, being realistic. In, um, in achievables or, you know, uh, key performance indicator. I mean, whatever uh, measurement they're using for uh, what they expect out of um, their team is make sure um, they, those expectations are realistic. 
Um, you know, one of the things that we have seen in, in the education sector over the years is there's all this desire for accountability. There's a, there's always a new initiative, but there's never any intentional work on, well, what are we taking off of teachers' plates? Yeah. We're asking them, you know, there's, you go back to No Child Left Behind, you know, and regardless of the politics of it, well intended, right? I mean, the, the, those behind that, they wanted to make sure no child got left behind. Well intended. What work was taken off of teachers so that they had the time to do the new work required? Well, and then and, and this is why we have such a teacher shortage is because we keep piling on to educators all these new accountability structures, structures or, or curriculum expectations, but we don't look at the capacity of what they have to do that well. Same in the work environment is you got to make sure you know your staff and what their capacity is and that we're protecting that we're not expecting them uh, to be putting in long hours afterwards that is not an assessment of a healthy environment you know there used to be kind of that that idea oh you know if, if you really want to you know you're really fully bought on you're going to be working 80 hours a week that's nonsense you're going to burn them out and and they're going to resent it in the end no there might be some times when Yep, we all got to buckle it and get it done. But that it can't be the norm. It can't be consistently going on. So I think I would say in those smaller ones, it's be patient. Have your goals, have your targets, but make sure you're constantly assessing the capacity of your team to reach those targets and make sure those targets are um, are realistic as well and, and relevant to, uh, to what you have as far as expectations. Uh, yeah. I think that's where I'd go. Dr. T, um, this whole conversation, one, one of the things I love about trusted and the concept of this bridge is I can leave this conversation a week or two, three weeks, four weeks, five months, and I'll remember this bridge concept. It, it kind of sticks with you. <laughs> I, I'll remember kind of the conversation based on, on the bridge part. Um, prior to this conversation, another book that helped me in this trust conversation really had an impact on me was the speed of trust. It sounds very similar to trust edge. And I, and I always have that formula in my head, you know, as trust goes up, speed goes up, costs go down. And I'm, I'm, you know, I have some finance in my background. So for me, Oh, that's a formula. I I can make that work. Uh, So it's been really helpful to have that formula of that bridge structure in our head. Uh, And I I love the, what you just said too, is be patient, be patient. And I think entrepreneurs and, and I've been victim of this myself, is I want to go, go, go. I want to build, build, build. I want to grow, grow, grow. And when you do that, sometimes you have blinders on, you don't see what's going on. You miss the signals, which leads you to potentially your substructure fall apart and in different areas. So I really love the be patient. Here's one area that, that I just should come back to because I'm struggling to connect the dots for myself on the difference between mission fulfillment and well-being. Um, so, so for me, maybe my mission in life can includes potentially well-being or fitness or health or, or things like that. But I'm trying to understand, you know, your mission is to help others reach mission fulfillment and well-being. Why did you add well-being to the end of that? And what does that mean to me and our listeners specifically? Well, um, I have just seen time and time again, and there's probably, you know, a trillion books out there about uh, organizations that have blown up because they didn't care for their people. 
Mm. and they didn't care for themselves. You know, how many stories are out there about uh, individuals who were passionate about succeeding in whatever industry it is, and then they end up blowing up and, and crashing and burning because they weren't involved in self-care or in team care or uh, the care of their, of their, of their culture and their, their employees. And so the reason um, I pair those together is because that's where longevity is. And that's where it lives is in organizations that figure out how to create a work climate that people want to be in. And it's like, oh, I can't wait to get to work today. I mean, this, these are the people I want to be with. This is the job I want to do. When we create those kinds of environments, whatever our missional objectives are as an organization are far more likely not only to be realized, but to be ongoing and continual. Um, and and that's, that's why it's critical. If all we're focused on is mission fulfillment, well, we can get there, maybe. You know, we, you can push buttons. You can, I, I, well, I, I want to be careful with my illustrations. But I think of a uh, an entrepreneur mm-hmm. who was very, very successful. In fact, if I mentioned his name, you would know his name. And I, I had the opportunity of working with him on one project and would never do it again. And what I saw is very, very successful in, in mission fulfillment. But he was burning through people so fast that no one wanted to work with him, including me. Uh, it was like, nope, I'm not going to do that again. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, and you, again, if I shared the story, uh, yeah. this is an individual who is not at the peak of their success today. Uh, and, uh, and, and their, um, you know, their, um, their business, their, their work, um, is not what it was uh, yeah. 10, 15 years ago and, and probably will not come back because nobody really wants to work with them. Yeah. So I love the way you've connected that. And it's not just mission fulfillment then in terms of you're not only helping me attain my mission fulfillment, but you also have a passion and a mission to help me make sure a, my well-being is good, but whatever I'm doing in my mission attainment, I care about the well-being of others as well. Is that fair? Yeah, that is very fair. Right. Rich, find that to be very deep personally. Like, you know, entrepreneurs were all about mission fulfillment, but then the well-being piece and taking care of yourself is so important. I know it's something we've talked to other people about as well, but I love the way you've brought that together, uh, Dr. T. I really appreciate that. Um, Rich, any final thoughts from you? Yeah, I have a quick question on your selection of background today. I see you've got Trusted. You've got uh, something that says CEO, you have Forbes on there, uh, Global. Are these uh, clients you've worked with? What is Global that seems to be on the other side? So, you know, for those who are listeners and not seeing it, you've been intentional about your background. I'd love for you to speak to it. Well, these are both uh, organizations that I'm associated with, uh, have either done work for or have written for. So I, I hope that you know, we're asking what else, you know, what do you do at the top? Uh, you were asking what, what well, one of the hats that I have is I'm also a, an opinion columnist and um, and my work's been actually, it was um, you know three times in the last month, I think I've been in Forbes. Um, and so, you know, I write for Authority Magazine and eSchool News and um, Global School Consulting Group, though, is a group that I've been associated with since its founding uh, a few years ago. Uh, Dr. David Wells founded that group and they, we have about 20 some consultants around the world. And this is a premier group of, of school consultants and business consultants and just 
I do a lot of work and projects with them. And uh, so that's why they're on, on the background. Uh, CEO World Magazine, I, I've, I've written for. Um, School Right is a data uh, delivery uh, organization for, or data collection and analysis uh, company that I work with heavily with schools. Uh, let's see here, uh, Willpower Consulting is a, uh, a business, a Fortune 100, Fortune 500 company, uh, or consulting company uh, that um, I'm, very, very uh, honored to be a part of. And uh, yeah, so what else is on Yeah, that? thank you yeah. for so that. That's, that's, that's basically what the, all those icons are behind me. Yeah, thank you. With the, with the obvious breadth of your experience and companies who you've worked with and, and written for, what would be the punctuation point to end this podcast with that you believe every entrepreneur should hear this message, whether it be doubling down on something you've already said or a new concept, what should every entrepreneur hear? Yeah, no, this is it, Rich. Uh, If you are not intentionally assessing your trust level, developing ongoing improvement goals for yourself as a leader and for your organization or your company and its trust level with employees and with clientele, you are missing the critical uh, work uh, that must be done. And let me, let me juxtapose, uh, put a juxtapose, I can say that word. Uh, I will. Thank you very much. Juxtapose it, yeah. Yes. 70% 70% of business launches, I'm sure you know this, this uh, data, and 70%, same number, 70% of improvement initiatives fail. And when you look at the 30% that are successful, what you find is they were successful in execution. So the failures were all kind of execution-related issues. And when you dig below that, okay, what was it that made that execution successful? Trusted leadership. And so if you are not investing time in, again, assessing your level of trust with your employees, with your clientele, uh, with your customers, with your vendors, right, and, and intentionally developing your skill set and your, in your corporate environment or company environment uh, around this key element of trust, you, you are literally setting yourself up for failure and you are missing a critical element of corporate and business development. And I can tell you, um, Fortune 100, Fortune 500 companies, they don't miss this trick. They spend big dollars on this. And it, and you don't have to spend big dollars. Uh, so I'm, I'm not saying, so again, to speak to our audience today, now you don't have to be spending tens of thousands of dollars on this to get it done but you need to be doing it. And so if you aren't already connected with a coach or a consultant that can help in this area, you're missing a critical, critical step for business success. Thank you, Dr. T. It was a pleasure having you on today. My joy. Thank you, guys. Great conversation. Please stick around for a few more minutes while Rich and I break down this episode. Where do we start on this debrief? Like we could go in, I feel like 20 different directions here. I disagree. <laughs> there's only one place. The nope. There's only one place to go. Cause you asked him specifically and he was very prepared for the question, which is if there was one thing that you had to double down or say, or do in this conversation to make sure that your message was passed on to our audience, what would it be? intentionally assessed trust level. 
That's it. Do you intentionally assess the trust level you have with your teams? That's Mm -hmm. the only place to go. Because if you think about it, everything that we're talking about is not just about accomplishing a goal or a budget or a target or a plan. It's also the well-being of your people. It's your well-being. It's sustainability. Like, I love the even the statistic you gave. 70% of improvement initiatives fail due to trust. I love that. In the M&A world, mergers and acquisitions, most M&A transactions fail because of trust. Hiring new employees and keeping them engaged in, in your business for a long period of time versus them leaving after six months is trust. Intentionally, as an entrepreneur, assessing your level of trust in the organization, I find to be a critical message here because when he said, you know, well, how do you erode, what's the one way leaders erode trust? You asked him and he said it was a substructure. It was them not being authentic or having level five leadership of being humility, having humility, being vulnerable, having self-awareness and way too many times entrepreneurs run so fast. They don't have time for the assessment. They don't have time to assess their trust level or intentionally care about it. That's the big message in my mind. I love where you're doubling down and you're making me think of there is a measurement opportunity in so many areas of our businesses. In almost any business, you can look at a number of leads, you can look at a number of closes, whether it be for service or for a product. Uh, You can look at what's the average uh, close dollar amount. Mm -hmm. You can measure how much money. You can look at ROI on marketing initiatives. And there's a, I picture a a KPI key performance indicator dashboard that you could have all this stuff on there. Where's the dashboard for trust? Where's the measurement for trust? And shouldn't that be on a KPI dashboard, just like leads, just like dollars closed, just like dollars produced? Shouldn't there be a KPI dashboard on trust? And if there's not a daily, weekly, monthly dashboard, should you at least be intentional and in trying to measure it in your organization on an annual basis? You know, we had on our Are you up or down yeah. this quarter versus yep. last quarter yep. on however trust is being measured? Exactly. And Dr. T talked about assessing, right? Doing assessments and having yourself, you know, evaluate yourself on how you think you're performing on the trust level in a bunch of different areas and then have your team assess you and see what the gap is. That's an exercise, Rich, I did many times, both individually as a leader, 360, as well as with my companies with one of our guests, Ruth Lund from the Legacy Center. Yes. And we would go through and assess myself and the team would assess my behaviors in terms of the trust level. And then the organization would, and what she would measure in her assessments was entropy. What is the level of entropy that exists in the organization? And entropy was kind of defined as, you know, when there was limiting factors that were holding the organization back from the relationships and trust and behaviors that existed in the organization. And what we would do on an annual basis, we'd measure the level of entropy. So entropy if it was at a 15% entropy in the organization, then we tried to drive it all the way down, right? Try it down to two, three, 4% entropy in the organization. So there are tools that will assess this. I'm sure Dr. T has his tools as well that are, seem very, very similar. I think that needs to be done at least on an annual basis. I don't know if it needs to be done weekly or monthly on a dashboard KPI, but there's also another thing that he talked about here that 
I don't think it's talked about enough. And as a matter of fact, I'm going to go to the CEOs I work with and ask them if they should be implementing this right now. It is a big takeaway from this, although it was a small section of our conversation, stay interviews. Mm-hmm. In this great resignation period where employees are leaving jobs and it's hard to hire people, it's hard to retrain what you have, to have a 15-minute, he said, 15-minute conversation to ask you three questions. Are you staying in your lane? How are you doing versus these jobs? The job you're expecting is what you're doing, you know, those kinds of things. How are you feeling? And how's your boss doing? I don't know if you caught that one. That one was uh-huh. interesting to me, right? Because you are the boss asking them, how am I doing? Am I supporting you properly? Are you happy? Am I, is there things I should be doing to lead you better? Is there any concerns you may have about our relationship? You know, asking somebody in an open environment in 15 minutes and a one-on-one mid-year, quarterly, whatever, that's powerful. If you're an employee and your boss is saying, Rich, what can I be doing better to develop my relationship with you? Is there anything I could be doing to motivate you, lead you? Is there anything I did that maybe you know, was off base? Please give me the feedback. And then take that feedback with you know, authenticity. That's powerful. I don't know if you need a dashboard to have those conversations, but seldomly do we have them. Yeah, I think that's great. I'll just for a moment, take a pit stop on the other side of the great resignation uh, that people typically think. What I mean by that is so many entrepreneurs that I talk to, the conversation is very similar to the way that you just introduced it. The great resignation, our people are leaving. We need to create a better culture. We have to retain our good people. I do want to encourage our entrepreneurs who are listeners to remember the great resignation means people are leaving other companies too. This is the time to go recruit. This is a time to go get really good people because people are leaving other companies. And so how are you going to get them rich? Trust. That's what we that's what we got from today, right? Exactly. But it's like don't focus 100% of the effort. In all honesty, maybe 80% of the effort, maybe even 90 on creating a culture where people stay and they're magnetically attracted to come into it, but you've got to reserve a little bit where you're still in the always be recruiting mode because good people are leaving other companies. Yeah. I certainly the the fondest memory I've ever had of the best company culture. Was I involved in it? The fondest? No, no, no. (laughs) You're in most of my best memories, but not this one. (laughs) All right. So in the best company culture that I ever experienced, almost every hire, that we were bringing on board was a warm network referral. Almost yeah. every single one. We never had to post an ad and bring somebody in from the outside. Uh, and, and that that just talks to you, you know, talks to the magic of when your people are going out to the to happy hour on Friday afternoon and they're talking to people at the bar going, you should work for this company. It's awesome, right? The culture's great. The people are great. People trust each other. There's a no asshole rule, you know, all those kinds of things. You attract people because those places are hard to find uh, in today's world, right? So I, I love that. The other piece that really struck with me in this conversation, uh, and it was towards the end that he mentioned it, is be patient. Uh-huh. Be patient. Trust is not built overnight. You putting posters on a wall and saying this is what we stand for, kind of, okay, pass the first test, but they're going to be watching. Watching you not just this week or next week, but next month, two months from now. When, when you're somewhere and you don't, they don't, you don't even know that they're there watching you, 
like you got to be patient and build that trust over a long period of time and be patient to let it kind of form itself. Um, that's something I think entrepreneurs have a you know struggle with. I did. I, I wish I would have asked Dr. T on this. When you talk about be patient, I think there's a very close connection between patience and loyalty. And I think one thing that we need to remember as employers of others is loyalty begets loyalty. Uh, All of our people have a life outside of their work, and every person has ups and downs in that life outside of work. And Dr. T talked about it on this podcast, where people's outside of work life influences their inside of work life. And I think to be loyal and patient with our people when they're experiencing things in their life that are impacting their work, I think loyalty begets loyalty. And there's an element of patience to that. Yeah. Now I'm confused because I was so sure that there was one nugget that recapped everything. And it was, do you intentionally assess your trust level? And now I'm not so sure based on what you just said, because the one thing he said very early on in the conversation with a lot of passion and heart was life is about relationships. Yes. I don't know how you can have trust if you don't have a deep relationship. Uh, Loyalty begets loyalty. Um, Trust. It's all part of that same conversation. Life is about relationships. Are you taking care of those relationships or are you so mission oriented and goal oriented that the well-being of yourself and others doesn't matter? It's all about getting to the mighty destination. Life is about relationships. That you know, to me, everything we keep talking about, you know, and, and you said it very well. Like, there's so many nuggets here. We can keep talking for hours, uh, and there's so much more that I love about what he delivered in terms of the formula of the bridge and everything that comes along with the bridge and the, and the part it plays in helping you get from point A to point B.